You know, fear can do strange things to you. When I was in second grade, I developed a deep fear of going to the bathroom at night. And so I was afraid to get up out of my bed and go around the corner into the bathroom that was right around the corner from my bedroom. And fear does weird stuff to you because I actually, instead of just getting up, going around the corner, going to the restroom, getting back into my my bed, I would actually go the whole way down the hallway to my parents' room. And I would appeal to them to take me to the bathroom. Well, they were smart enough not to do that. But they were smart enough to get me there fast. Because when you're in second grade, it kind of occurs to you at the last moment, you've got to go to the bathroom, right? And so my mom would teach me this little prayer. She would say, what I want you to do is go to the bathroom on your own, but I want you to say this prayer the whole way down. I will trust in the Lord and not be afraid. I will trust in the Lord and not be afraid. So I'd start getting down the hallway. I trust in the Lord and not be afraid. I trust in the Lord and not be afraid. And I'd run back to the room, potty, you know, I'm trying to trust in the Lord and not be afraid. I trust in the Lord and not be afraid. Trust, oh, thank you, Lord. And then I'd scurry back to my bed. Now, I really wasn't afraid of the dark, right? We're not afraid of the dark. We're afraid of what we imagine is in the dark, right? And in my mind, there were witches in the dark. I don't know why. And those witches lived in the bathtub in the, there. And sometimes would crawl under my bed and put their ugly hands up around my bed. I don't know why. I dreamed about that. Maybe it was from watching The Wizard of Oz and the ugly witch who finally the house came down and smashed her. My dad was, see, they're dead. They're dead now. She's dead. See? She's shriveled up. She's gone. But fear does weird things to you. Fear made me, instead of getting up and going where I needed to go, go someplace where I wasn't going to go, right? In my parents' room. They weren't going to let me go in my parents' room. You guys aren't getting it. Anyhow... Or you're getting it and you're just not laughing. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. But fear does weird stuff to us. Does weird stuff to us. I I searched this on the internet and found the top 10 things that people fear that are external to themselves. Let's go ahead and see if you can guess at them. Guys, go ahead and pull up the first one. Can you do that? Or is it not responding to you? There's the first one. What do you think this is a fear of? Public speaking. You got it. I don't have that one. Fear of public speaking. What's the next one, guys? Go ahead and pull that up. The fear of heights. I do have this one. Not as bad as my dad. He would never go up on a roof, but what's this one? Fear of the dentist. I feared the dentist so much I, I missed my appointment two weeks ago. Um, fear of snakes, kind of self-evident. What's this one? Fear of flying. Yeah, My son, who flew back to Colorado the last two days, which took him two days to get to Colorado, he was fearing not flying. What's this a fear of? Fear of spiders. This is a fear of being locked in a room where you can't smoke. <laughs> All right? Fear of enclosed spaces. Fear of traps. No, fear of mice. What's this one? Fear of dogs. I'm, I'm more afraid of that guy than I am the dog. And this is fear of what? Lightning, thunder, storms, that kind of... These are the top 10 kind of exterior... I mean, this is surveys we're done, Gallup polls. This is what people say that they're afraid of. Because we really can get more in touch with our outer fears than our inner fears. But I want to talk to you this morning about an inner fear that Paul addresses in his letter in, uh, this morning. And if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, you will see that Paul is addressing an inner fear. And he's addressing this inner fear 
And the fear is this. I fear that I won't cut it with God. I fear that I won't measure up to what God wants me to be or how he wants me to act. I have an inner fear of punishment that's coming from God because I don't cut it with God, or I think I don't cut it with him, and the hammer's coming down in this life and perhaps in the life to come. And so Paul knows that this is a common fear, and so he deals with this in this passage where he talks to us about if we deal with this fear and we resolve this fear of our past and not cutting it with God, we can fully embrace joy and we can enjoy the present, and then we can have a good view into the future and be full of hope and joy. So how many of you here this morning would like to cash in your fear for faith and leave here this morning full of the joy of the Lord? How many of you would like to do that? Okay. We're going to do some exercises to do that this morning and sing some songs at the end and just cash in our fears for faith and ask for God to fill us with his joy today. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to do that given what the Bible tells us written down by the Apostle Paul. But in 1 John 4.18, it says this about fear. Fear, a fear, unhealthy fear of God has to do with punishment. It says that. Now, why does it say that? Because we think the hammer's coming. We're going to get punished at any moment. The God reigns over us, and we have the good idea that we're accountable to God. That's a good thing. But we have this idea that God's just ready to slam the hammer down any time. When bad things happen in our life, we think, oh, those bad things must have happened and are happening in our life because God's out to get me, or I've really messed up, or whatever. And so we have this fear of punishment. In his book, Totally Forgiving Ourselves, R.T. Kendall talks about this whole idea of being gripped by fear and being devoid of joy. And he talks in the preface to this volume, he says that Fear does four things to us. There's four truths about fear when we have this kind of inner fear. He said, first, the person that has this type of inner fear lives in fear and is already punished by this fear and is truly living in a continual torment because they're just waiting for the hammer to come down in this life for the next one. He says, number two, the person in this type of fear fears being punished by God all the time. The third thing is, the person in this type of fear is always punishing him or herself. That's why people who fear punishment get into addictions like even cutting. Cutting is, I'm afraid I'm not really making the mark, and so I'm punishing myself. I'm punishing myself before somebody else actually gets to do it. I'll punish myself before someone else gets to do it. The fourth is the person who lives in fear always wants to punish others. They always want others to be under the same level of punishment and what they think is justice before God. And so nobody else can be left off the hook. Nobody else can have amazing grace. Nobody else gets to get a pass or whatever. And that person is usually preoccupied with setting people straight or making sure Everything's settled. They're, they're preoccupied with, well, that's not fair. They keep carrying that over into adult life. We do that as children, but when we keep doing that as adult, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. We're preoccupied with punishment, and we're full of fear and doubt. And we live our life that way, because others must be punished. 
So what do you do when fear has its grip on your soul and has robbed you of your joy? Paul wants to help us with that. He's the expert on that. In Philippians 3, he tells us how to deal with our past in a way that brings hope to today and leads us into a future that God has for us. So I want to talk about this for a couple minutes this morning. So pull your outline out. Get ready to take some notes there this morning. Let's pull that out. And your first point this morning is, when fear interrupts your joy, process your past in the shadow of the cross. Process your past in the shadow of the cross. Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 3 of Philippians, this is the key verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul goes on in the next couple verses, and he says, I haven't attained this. I haven't fully went into this whole idea of fellowshipping with Christ in his suffering, and I haven't risen again from the dead, obviously. But Paul says, I want to rise again from the dead. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, I want to be like Christ. I want him to so dwell in me that I don't fear even death. I know my body and my soul will rise again in eternity. But I also want my spirit here in this life to rise from the dead. And then he goes on to say, I haven't attained it. I'm not there yet, but I'm I'm getting there. I'm on a journey. I'm on a, he's almost like Paul saying, it's almost like Paul wrote our vision statement, discovering a life-changing journey with Jesus. So Paul says, you're never there in the journey. You're headed toward that destination. And this is his key verse here. So then he goes on to explain and talk about how he's walking this road. He says, not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we're really going to focus on these verses in 12 through 14. This whole idea, but this one thing I do, I press on and I forget the past. Now, when you first read this, you can say, well, I guess Paul's just saying, just forget your past. Don't worry about your past. Why are you worried about your past? And uh, how many of you are good at that? Things that were sin, sins that were committed against you, you just forget them. Forget them. Forget them. You don't even remember them. I don't even remember anybody ever sinning against me. So good. How many, how many of you are good at that? Just don't keep an account, right? How many of you are good at like looking at your past and seeing all your screw-ups and things that you did and just saying, I, I don't even remember. I don't even remember when I messed up like that. If you, if you are really good at that, you're free from fear. You're totally free from fear, okay? But most of us aren't good at that. We keep an account of ourselves and we keep an account of things that other people have done wrong against us. And so we get stuck in this whole idea of fear. So it seems like Paul may be just saying, just forget about it. 
Don't worry about it. Is Paul telling us to bury our past? Can't be. Because even in the same letter, Paul recounts his past of where he was the great persecutor of the gospel. He was blocking the good news of Jesus Christ from coming to this earth. He was standing there when Stephen was stoned, watching him be killed, thwarting the gospel. He was a murderer for the sake of blocking the good news. And he says it. So it can't be that he's saying, don't revisit that, because he revisits it. He talks about it. He talks about how arrogant he was to think that through the law, he could totally fulfill what God had done through the cross. So he's not saying that. He's not saying bury it. You know what? And if you do bury it, Paul knew th- know this. If you bury your past failures and your past hurts and your past wounds, you will leak. If you push it down, it'll come out. You'll want others to be punished. You'll want yourself to be punished. You'll live in fear instead of faith. If you push it down, it'll leak. It'll come out. So it can't be what Paul is saying. Is Paul telling us to just deny the past? No. He recounts it. He doesn't deny his past. He actually confesses his past. Paul's confessions are written for, they're documented from 2,000 years ago. He documents his confessions. They're here for the early church to read and for us to read. How would you like to have your confessions documented? Put into the Bible so everyone can read them. I'd rather not. I'd rather not. But Paul does that. Instead, I think that Paul is telling us to face our past and let God heal our wounds so that we can be free from fear, the fear of punishment, so that we can be covered with amazing grace. And he does this in a number of ways. There's a, there's a pathway that we can do this. First, he develops awareness. He develops some awareness. Notice when he was not aware that he was blocking the gospel. He thought he was just being a great Jewish leader and a Pharisee. And so he's blocking the good news and he's blinded by a light. And in those three days of blindedness, he becomes aware of what he's really doing and who Christ is. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. He becomes aware. It's important for us to become aware of how we've tried maybe in our past to atone or pay our own way to God, pave our own way to God. That's what we maybe should be most fearful of, trying to pay our own way, when only Christ can pay that way for us. Second thing he does is he starts to ten- his heart starts to get tenderized. He sees the effect of his sin on himself and on, even on God and on others and on the church. He starts to be tenderized. And when you start to get tenderized, then you start to confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So awareness is good, but we can't stop at awareness. We need a tenderness that leads us to confession. Dear God, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you, God. Thank you, God, for loving me. Sometimes we need to phrase that apology very succinctly and forwardly to God so we can be forgiven and set free from our fear. The third thing is Paul turns from the old past and he discovers a new life-changing journey with Jesus. This is called repentance. When you turn from one way of living to another way of living, Paul knew that. He was repentant. He turned from one way to a whole other way of living. And that whole other way of living wound him up in jail, writing letters to the early church, 
as a training manual for them to follow Christ. So awareness, confession, and repentance are kind of these paving stones. So when we deal with our past in this way, awareness, confession, repentance, when we deal with it in the shadow of the cross, it leads us into the light of God's goodness and forgiveness for eternity. If anyone had a fear of their past catching up to him, it could have been Paul. Listen to this. He says this in Philippians 3, 4 through 6 earlier on in this letter. Though I could have had confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I'm a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I am so zealous that I harshly persecute the church, and for, for, and for righteousness I obeyed the law without fault. Oh, really, Paul? You obeyed all the law of the Old Testament without fault? You are the first human being on the face of the planet who's ever done that. He is saying this tongue-in-cheek. He is saying, that's how arrogant I was. That I thought I could pay my own way. And a person like this is living in great fear to be performing that much. I will outperform God and his law. But that's what we do when we don't by faith accept amazing grace through Jesus Christ. We try to make our own way, our own path. And out of arrogance and out of fear, we miss out. Our joy is stolen from us, and we're full of fear. Because you can't act in fear and faith at the same time. You may be able to toggle between faith and fear, but you can't act out of them at the same time. You're acting out of either one or the other. And Paul says, in my old life, I was so trying to perform because I feared the punishment of Yahweh. But that was before I knew that Yahweh sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And I met him for three days. I was blinded and I conversed with him. And in the darkness, the light was shed on my life. Sometimes the most dark places in your life is where God sheds a light on the inside. Helps you become aware. Helps you become tender. Helps you become repentant and follow him. That's what happened to Paul. He said, that's the road. That's the road to the fellowship of his suffering to the power of his resurrection, to becoming like him in his death, to somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead, I must by faith accept what Christ did for me on the cross. That's why Paul could write in Ephesians, it is by grace that we're saved through faith. Both grace and faith are a gift of God. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. And so if you want to be free from fear this morning and the fear of punishment for yourself and then the, the need to punish others and straighten everybody else out and keep them on the straight and narrow, then this morning just stop, close your eyes, bow your head with me right now and just lift up a heartfelt prayer to God that goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, I surrender my fear to you. By faith I believe and the atoning sacrifice of Calvary on my behalf. Fill me with your joy. From this day on, Lord, I want the joy of the Lord 
to be my strength. Just give yourself to him. Humbly, repent, turn, pray. Lord, in this moment, hear our prayers. Take our fear and banish it. I think of the book of Joshua where it tells the people, banish fear and doubt. Banish it. So Lord Jesus Christ, come by your spirit. Surround our fears and tell them to leave in the name and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and then fill us with faith. Faith to believe in amazing grace. Faith to walk a new road. Faith to walk, whether it looks totally light or totally dark around us, for you are with us, your rod and your staff, your comfort to us. Bless us today. Hear our prayers today. In Christ's name, amen. You know, this past year I've been studying a number of different books with folks, and one of the ones that we're studying was Soul Care. How many of you have been able to do Soul Care in a small group or come out to the Soul Care conference? A few of you here have been able to do that. One of the things I'm doing to follow up with people who have studied soul care this year is to do something called a whole life confession, four weeks of awakening to mercy, healing, and peace. And starting in the next week and a half, I'll go through that with a select group of people who have done the other studies. They've kind of prepared themselves for this whole life confession and to take a whole month of devotionals and readings and time with each other and say, God, I put my whole life before you. I don't fear my past. I confess every sin that was done against me and every sin that I know of in my whole life and I give it to you and I'm free. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to live by faith. And so starting in about a week and a half, there'll be a handful of us that walk through that. It's important that you're ready for that. Someone come up up, up to me after the first service and said, can I do that or have a friend that does? I said, you have to really be ready for this. Okay? You have to have done some other soul care work to be ready to do this. But I've been reading back through this book and I've been thinking about it a lot and the whole idea of bringing this to God is the whole idea that I don't sit there and I'm introspective. Introspective is I sit there and I try to figure out everything I've done wrong and I write it down. No, no, no. It's about God's inspection. God's inspection looks like this. Holy Spirit, I so trust you to speak to me that you come and shed light on the things that I really need to confess and give to you so I can walk in freedom. It isn't, again, about you figuring it out and cleaning yourself up. It's about amazing grace. In the book, uh, the author, William Watson, talks about these uh, sins. Can you guys pull up that next graphic there? He says, in our life, there are original sins, which are the roots of our life, and then there are core sins that make up the trunk of our tree, then there's manifest sins in our life. Original sins are based upon the original sin of Adam and Eve. The original sin of Adam and Eve, which we all suffer from, is making a moral decision about right and wrong without the input of God. That's exactly what original sin is. Every one of us suffers from original sin. We try to make moral choices about good and evil without the input of God. All you've got to do is read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you'll, you'll see it. It's right there. Okay, so... We all suffer from original sin, but our core sins come out of that. And maybe in our life we have 
one, two, or perhaps three core sins. And these core sins are, come out of that warped thinking. The warped thinking is, I can choose between right and wrong without the input of God. I don't need him. And so we make choices over and over again, and we get some core sins going, right, that come out of that original sin. Now, most of the sins that we're aware of are manifest sins, okay? They're up in the tree there, okay? Manifest sins are things like addictions, you know, uh, overeating, overdrinking, oversexualizing everything. Um, when we take the good things that God does and we twist them to be used, and we usually can get a hold of some of those and we try to attend to them. We stop trying to drink so much. We, we stop trying to be obsessive thinkers. We stop trying to control everybody. We stop... We try to stop punishing everybody. We, we try to stop all these behaviors. And, and, and we do behavior management. And lots of Christians do that. And we're pretty good about preaching and teaching about it and doing Bible studies about it. About just manage your sin better. That's often, that's often the, the uh, message most people get when they come to church. Just manage your sin better. Don't do it as often. Why is that? Because we're stuck up here. We never get down there. These four weeks help you get down to, what does God say? What are some of my core things that I believe that aren't true? They're lies that I believe. And how does that relate back to the whole idea of, I can choose without his input? It may be that in the next year of your life, you need to do this. A whole life Confession. I was just at Alliance Council, Council of Churches for the Christian Missionary Alliance, and the uh, leader of the alliance in Canada, the Can- Canadian president, he spoke on this for a whole evening. He said, everyone in this room needs to do a whole life confession before God, because you're stuck. We shouldn't be out trying to reach people of the world for Jesus Christ and sending missionaries all over the globe when we're stuck. And we shouldn't be sending stuck people out to try to get other people unstuck. That was quite a convicting message to give to over 5,500 delegates that night. But he did it, and at the end of that night, the front of that auditorium was full. About 3,000 people came forward just for prayer. I stayed there to see how long they would stay. They stayed for about an hour and a half. Just praying, praying for one another, blessing one another, worshiping with one another. Bringing it all before the Lord is a good thing. He knows it all anyhow. And he wants to forgive every last part of it. He already took care of it on the cross. But he wants you to become aware of it and give it to him. Second point that I want to talk to you about this morning is when we live in this kind of fear, and we need to walk in the light when we're walking in darkness, when fear interrupts your joy, you need to focus on the future in the shadow of the cross. Focus on the future in the shadow of the cross. Paul says, 
dear brothers and sisters, I haven't achieved it. I haven't achieved this whole goal of knowing Christ and the power. I don't fully know him yet. I'm getting to know him. I'm walking with him, but I don't, I'm not fully there yet. I'm on the process. I'm on the journey, but I forget what's in the past and I look forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach to the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Paul uses language here of somebody who's actually training for a great Olympic event. He's not talking about someone training for like a high school cross-country event. He's not talking about someone who's getting ready for a little league event. He's talking about someone who's training for Wimbledon. Anybody watch Wimbledon last week or so? See that American guy who was 6'6"? He beat the Brit. Come on, we beat the British. That's what the 4th of July is all about. Come on, you didn't watch Wimbledon? When those guys train, I was watching them yesterday. I was watching the doubles. I'm like, man, oh, day. Are those guys in some condition? I mean, they're just like, bam, bam, bam. How can they be that quick? Because they're training for that one thing. We want to win Wimbledon. We want to win the big one. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm training for the big event. I'm training for the king of kings. I'm training to know him and the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Because in following him, I'll probably have to become like him in his death. In Jesus' death, it says in scripture, he was of no reputation. The chances are, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to get to a point in your life where your reputation gets flushed down the crapper. Matter of fact, I can guarantee it. Because the Bible says it. But knowing him and walking with him and rising again with him is much better than any earthly reputation. And Paul says, press on in the journey. Press together in the journey. He's not writing this to himself. He's writing it to a group of churches. He said, I want to press on together with you. I want to know this together with you. I don't want to just experience this on my own. He has a singular commitment. He has a visionary commitment. He has an energetic commitment. Almost like an athlete would have training for a great race. But I ask you, what happens when you're running the race of faith and suddenly you find that night has fallen and you're running in the dark? Have any of you experienced that? You're running the race of faith. Things seem to be going good, but all, all of a sudden, night fell. Do you ever notice that in the summertime? In the summertime, I'm moving so much, I, I don't even notice when night falls, but then all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the backyard, and all of a sudden, it's pretty dark out here. Those fireflies are putting on quite the show tonight. They are so cool. But sometimes in our race of faith, and Paul knew this, Paul's running the race of faith, he's moving on, he's planting churches, he's getting it going, he's leading a repentant lifestyle, he's not blocking the gospel, he's bringing the gospel to the globe. Think about it. Then all of a sudden, he's stuck in the dark. He could say, I'm stuck in the prison, I'm stuck in the dark, I can't see well. We know from his other letters, he writes, see how I wrote this letter in my own hand with my big letters. We know the Apostle Paul probably couldn't see well from being 
maybe blinded on the road, and then also being blinded in the dungeon of darkness. But he didn't let that stop him. He didn't let the darkness around him become a darkness within him because the light of Christ was within him. He stirred that into faith. You know, we all go through these kind of times in our life and it's what we do with them that's important. They're called walls or some people have called them the dark night of the soul. Here's how one author, Pete Scazzaro, explains it. For most of us, the dark night appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. It comes perhaps through a divorce, a job loss, the death of a close friend or a family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God is the result. We question ourselves, we question God, we question the church, and we discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is and what he is doing and where he is going and how he is going to get us there or when this will all be over. We feel like we are walking in the dark. I've been reading a book called Learning How to Walk in the Dark by Barbara Brown Taylor. It's a good book because she reminds us that there's lots of things in the Bible where God works in the darkness. Think about it. She says in her book that there's a lot of things that happen in the darkness where God works his wonders. She said, once you start noticing how many important things happen at night in the Bible, the list grows fast. Jacob wrestles with an angel by the river all night long, surviving the match with a limp and a blessing and a new name at night in the darkness. His son Joseph dreams such dreams at night that he catches a Pharaoh's attention, graduating from the dungeon to the palace to become the royal interpreter of dreams at night in the darkness. The exodus from Egypt happens at night, not during day. God parts the Red Sea at night. Manna falls from the sky at night in the wilderness. And that's just the beginning. Read on and you'll see that God not only works in the light, he works in some of the darkest times of our lives. The truth is that sometimes God shines the brightest light on the fears that are hidden deep within when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. When we focus on our future, we can begin to see that God is with us in the darkness. Last week, I got to go camping with my youngest son at Poe Valley State Park. How many of you know where Poe Valley State Park is? You should, you should get on there and visit. It's right between Lewistown and State College. There's a range of parks. Uh, Reeds Gap State Park is there. Poe Valley State Park is there. Uh, Greenwood Furnace State Park is there, and they're all connected by gravel roads. So once you get into one of the parks, you can just take your SUV. We were in an SUV, so we could go between the parks. And he loves the outdoors, so he's like, Dad, let's not get on the highways. Let's just go back. to." And we came to uh, Poe Valley State Park. We stayed there overnight, camped there overnight. And we were just so surprised to find when we set up the, the tent that somebody had not put the tent 
pools in there. It rained all night that night. Fortunately, I knew that State College is only about 30 minutes away and there's a Walmart there. Sam Walton, God bless your soul in heaven. Bought a little two-man pop tent for $24, put it up, got out of the rain for the night, we had a great time. Next morning, we went over to, to uh, uh, there's Poe Valley State Park and there's Poe Patty. Poe Patty's right next to it. I think Poe must be an Indian word or just must be for us Poe folks in Pennsylvania to go there. So we went over there and there was a tunnel. We were on our hike in the morning and we stopped and somebody was fly fishing down there. It's a beautiful morning. We're on our hike and we're going out there and we had our breakfast and we're cruising on. We come to this tunnel. We walk into the tunnel and all of a sudden it is just black. It is so dark that you know when you do this thing and you can't see your hand? Remember that when you've been like at Luray Caverns or someplace and they say, put your hand up in front of you, you can't see it. It's so dark in here. And they go on and on and on about how you'll never see your hand. Doesn't matter how long you hold it up there, blah, 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 blah. Well, that happened. So I knew I had an app on my phone. I had a light app on my phone, but I couldn't see the apps on my phone. And what did I do? There's a couple things that happen when you're covered and shrouded in darkness. The first thing you do is you slow down. You don't walk as fast in the darkness. One of the gifts of the darkness and the dark night of the soul is that you slow down and you start to listen for the voice of God instead of the other voices around you. So we're walking through this tunnel and I'm slowing down and pretty soon I kind of put my hand out to see if my son is next to me and his hand bumps my hand and he, he says, Dad, relax a little bit. The light is coming. You know, in the dark night of the soul, if you listen for God's voice, and if you take his hand, he'll say to you, relax, the light is coming. There may be other dark nights. We go through one, more than one dark night of the soul in our life. But to hear the voice of the Father, through the Son and the power of the Spirit, say, relax. I'm with you. This is just the valley of the shadow of death. It's just a shadow. Live in the shadow of the cross instead. Walk with me. When I was a little boy and I was afraid of the dark, my mother taught me that prayer. I would trust in the Lord and not be afraid. It's actually a pretty biblical prayer. If you read back through the Psalms and the Proverbs, you'll come upon them again and again and again. Where that's the pattern. I will trust in you, Lord. And then I will not be afraid. I want us to stand to our feet and I want us to read one of those prayers together. It's called Psalm 23. I want you to grab your outline, stand to your feet. And I want us to read this together as a declaration of, Lord, I'm giving you my fear. I'm receiving your faith. And I'm embracing the joy that you have for me. It starts with the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's read it out loud together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As we get ready to sing a couple more songs and close out our time of corporate worship this morning, and as you reflect and pull out your response card, I want you to think about this question. What new thing might God be birthing in me as I let go of my past and press on into the future, following Jesus with every step? What new thing might God be birthing in you as you let go of your past and press on into the future, following Jesus with every step? Guys, I want you just to leave that question up. They, they know what the card looks like by now. I want you to reflect on this during the next couple quiet moments and then I want you to fill out your response card a little bit later on and just drop that in the boxes or at Guest Central if you're a guest when you go. Take a couple moments during this music to reflect and record. Let's go ahead and do that right now. <laughs> 